open up in a word of prayer real quick. Father, it's, it's humbling to be able to come before you and to represent you as your followers. God, it doesn't matter whether we're up on stage preaching or we're at our daily job or maybe we're at a picnic with friends. Lord, we represent you everywhere that we go. Father, I pray that you would help us to see what a privilege it is to be called children of God. Lord, we, we know that we need you so much every moment of our lives. And I pray that as we look at your word this morning that, God, you would help us to see how much we need to be dependent upon you and upon your word each and every day. I pray, Father, that your spirit would go forth and work in our hearts, that, Lord, you would bring your message for us, your people, and that you would grow us as you see fit. So, Lord, this time is yours. We worship you in it. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, I have all kinds of wild stories as I think back uh, to different outdoor excursions. Some of you have heard of some of my infamous hiking trips that uh, started out foolishly and ended faithfully by God's grace sparing me from greater harm and others. Um, but when I was younger, I had a, a babysitter. Uh, she was kind of like, a, in a lot of ways, we were kind of, my brother and I were her surrogate children. I have a younger brother, for those of you who don't know that. He's two years younger. He's about six inches taller. Um, we're about as different as could be. He could be sitting in this room right now, and you would not know it, and I would only know it because he's my brother. Uh, but anyway, we had these, this dear couple, and they, um, they were unable to have children of their own, though they had tried for, for many, many years. So we kind of were adopted into their family. They babysat us while my parents worked. And one of the things that they would do is, during the summer this time of year, they would take us on a two-week excursion somewhere in the middle of nowhere. They were both from up north, uh, so they knew all these back roads. We would drive for hours upon dusty roads that... I wasn't sure where we were going, but I knew the, uh, the destination would be fun and involve fishing and camping and that sort of thing. And on one such trip, we, we went up to Baxter State Park. And it was just kind of a day trip that we went up there. And they were taking us to this place called um, Ledges Falls. It's a natural water slide in Baxter State Park. I don't know if any of you have ever been there before. But it's uh, one of those unique spots where God and his magnificence has placed this stream that comes down this rock, I won't say rock face because that makes it sound really scary, but this gradual rocks procession, if you will. And as the water goes down over these rocks over time, it's made it smooth. So all you have to do is go out, sit in the current of the, of the stream itself, and it carries you down the rocks like a natural water slide. Sounds like a fun time. It was a beautiful day. We pulled up in the minivan. And before I had instructions, I had already been running down to the rocks, getting ready for my first trip. Nice story. A couple problems with that. One, I'm not a very good swimmer. Certainly wasn't at that time. Uh, in fact, once in my scary childhood life, I had jumped into the deep end of a pool and had to be fished out with a giant net. So that gives you a little bit of my background swimming. Number two, 
those of you that know my son Aiden, he's nine years old. He probably weighs about 70-something pounds right now. And he probably weighed more than I did at the time. As a freshman, I weighed 98 pounds. So while I don't remember how much I weighed at that time or how old I was, I can imagine I wasn't very big. So here I am. I get up on this natural water slide, and I step out into the current, and I sit down. And before I know it, I am flying down at a rapid pace at a speed that, A, I am very uncomfortable with, and B, I really thought I was going to die. So instead of screaming joys and excitement, I was actually screaming in great terror. And as this water slide carried me down, I honestly, all I could think of at that time was, I think I'm going to die. As I'm getting rushed down this water slide, it opens up at the bottom into a pool, and then the stream continues down further into the woods. In the middle of this pool, there was this rock. And I still believe to this day God placed that rock there because he knew some foolish child was going to climb up on this natural water slide and need some help. And as I'm going through the stream, screaming, thinking I'm going to die, I run into this rock and I hold on to it for dear life. Babysitter comes, her husband wades out, pulls me from the rock, drags me back to safety where I spent the rest of my day sitting on the sidelines. Today in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to look at how important and how necessary it is for us to cling to the, the rock of God's word. As we looked at last week in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is writing to Timothy in a time that is really very perilous, very turbulent, we might say. He says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And we looked at that word difficult in the Greek, and it's got a really strong thrust to it. It's got the idea that the times are going to be violent. The times are going to be challenging. And Paul goes on to list 19 different characteristics that will characterize the people in those days. They'll be lovers of self, lovers of money. They'll pursue pleasure rather than pursue God. They're going to be boastful and arrogant and proud. They're going to be slanderers, irreconcilable, unloving. And as we look through this list and as Paul challenges Timothy, remember Timothy is a young pastor in a large church environment. Now, they didn't meet in a church like this, but he kind of oversaw, he was an overseer, a pastor in Ephesus. Ephesus was this huge commercial hub in those days. And they're also living in a time where Rome is in power, but the emperor of Rome is Nero. And if you know anything about Nero from history, you know that he wasn't the greatest of guys. We talked last week about how in AD 64, it's believed that Nero actually set Rome on fire himself in order to create space to expand his palace. To take attention off of himself as being the guilty one in doing that, he set out this great persecution against Christians. He blamed Christians for the fire, and as a result, mass arrests, murders, persecutions were taking place. They would wrap Christians in animal skins and set wild dogs on them. There are accounts that Nero actually would dip Christians in oil and light them on fire to be human torches in his garden. So when Paul's running to Timothy and he's challenging him and he's reminding them that difficult times are ahead, difficult times are here, 
Imagine where Timothy's at in his heart. As Paul writes this in AD 67, he's actually imprisoned for his faith. We find out earlier in this chapter that he, he's actually in chains. Not like at the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28 when he's under house arrest and people can freely come and go. He's actually in chains and we know from church history that this is the year that Paul gets beheaded for his faith. Second Timothy is the last letter that Paul writes that we have recorded in Scripture. And he's writing to a young pastor who had followed his teaching, who had been his disciple, to remind him to cling to the rock of God's word in turbulent times, which is what we're going to look at today. Paul's charge to Timothy all along, and you can see it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, the earlier letter written probably about four years prior. He tells him, he says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith with a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Fight the good fight. If you are in your Bibles and you haven't turned to Second Timothy, I encourage you to do so. But if you turn back just a few pages to First Timothy chapter 6, there's this theme of fighting the good fight that comes up again in verse 11. First Timothy 6, verse 11. He says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain, or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And as we shift to today's passage in Second Timothy, that theme is still the same. Timothy I challenge you in the midst of everything that you will face to fight the good fight. Paul's concern probably is that Timothy may actually stray from the faith. We would never think of that in regards to Timothy, but Paul has already seen several people. And if you read through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you learn of Hymenaeus and Phagellus and a group of different people that were disciples of Paul that had followed Christ, that have already walked away from the faith in the state of the current conditions. Paul's challenging Timothy to stand firm. And though last week's message is a little bleak if you look at it in the list of what the times are going to be like, today's message gives us a picture of how we stand in such times. And the key to standing in such times, whether it's through persecution or it's through just trials and difficulties in our life, is to cling to God's word. So we're going to look at God's Word today and its importance. But first, kind of two sections that this passage is broken up. And we're going to look at the fact that living for Christ will eventually lead to persecution. And then how God's Word is that rock in the midst of such persecution. So let's look at chapter 3, verse 10 of Second Timothy. Paul writes and he says, But you, Timothy, followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. 
what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul gives his own personal example to Timothy of persecution. If you turn to the book of Acts, we'll start in Acts chapter 13. We're just going to run through these three places that Paul mentions. He talks about Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. And as Mark went through the book of Acts, we saw these, so we'll just kind of review real brief. But let's see what Paul faced at the hands of standing up for Christ. First, Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 16. We see Paul's ministry at Antioch. In verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, and they came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath they went into the synagogue and they sat down. Remember, the synagogue was where they would go. That's where the Jewish people would go, and they would read God's word to each other. It was a natural place for Paul to go to not only hear the word of God, but to use the word of God to show them how the Messiah had already come. After the reading, verse 15, of the Law and the Prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he began his little mini-sermonette. You kind of imagine that, like, man, talk about the awesomeness of God. Paul's sitting in the synagogue, and he gets this open invitation. Hey, does anybody have anything they want to talk about? Anything about God's word you want to talk about today? Paul stands up and says, yeah, let me, share, let me share who you're reading about today. Let me show you how Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament. How the prophets that spoke of him has finally come to pass. If you flip ahead in the same chapter, to verses 42, you see the response to Paul's message about Christ. It says in verse 42, As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. That would be really cool to have that happen in Wyndham, wouldn't it? But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, verse 45, and they began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So in response, the Jews rose up and they mocked him out of jealousy. If you flip ahead to chapter 14, verse 17, excuse me, verses 1 through 7, we see how he was re- responded to at Iconium. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a matter that a large number of people believed, both Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. 
And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it, and they fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. The third spot that Paul mentions takes place in the next verse and following at Lystra. And it says, At Lystra there was a man sitting who had no strength in his feet. He was lame from his mother's womb, and he had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke too. When he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, Paul said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Laconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And if you read on, you see that the people, they were so amazed by this miracle of God that they attributed Paul as being a god. And they looked at Paul and Barnabas, who were both there, and they said, This is the gods that have come down among us. And they referred to Barnabas as Zeus and as, to Paul as Hermes. And of course, Paul and Barnabas were appalled by this. And they said, what are you doing? Don't, don't worship us. We're just men. Worship God who healed this man. Well, you can imagine the excitement if you jump ahead to verses 19 through 22. It says, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul. And they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. While the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. Paul knew what it was like to stand for the truth of God's word and to be persecuted. We see kind of a progression where even in this last place in Lystra, that it almost cost him his life. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's a foreign thing. I've never been persecuted to any level where I feared for my life. Usually, my greatest fear has been, what will that person think of me if I speak Christ to them? For Timothy, it was a very real situation. And the thing that Paul points out to him is, Timothy, in the midst of everything I went to, I want you to see that God delivered me. God delivered me. The Lord was faithful. It's also important for us to realize, though, that as Paul says this, this is not a promise. God's deliverance from persecution in the midst of persecution is not a promise you can claim any more than it was a promise Paul could claim. Think about it for a minute. Where is Paul right now as he writes this letter? Where will Paul be in less than a year. He will be dead for his faith. It drives me nuts when I hear Christian speakers talk about the fact that if you just live for Christ, everything will go well. probably heard of it as the health and wealth gospel. The fact that you don't have wealth and the fact that you don't have health is because you lack faith. There's nothing biblical about that. There's nothing biblical that says if you just live for the Lord, you're going to live a life of ease. The promise that you can cling to is the fact that if you live for the Lord, He will never leave you nor forsake you. 
the promise that you can cling to is the promise that Paul says in verse 12 that indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. We don't know what that's like in our current state but in America, but I, I'm not so sure we're too far from heading down that road. I'm not a prophet. I'm not trying to give you scare tactics. But we see countless times in Scripture where persecution was the end result for standing for Christ. In fact, if you look at John chapter 15, turn with me in your Bibles there real quick, Jesus himself spoke of the reality of persecution for those that would follow him. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Persecution in our times, though not something that's prevalent in our country itself, if you look across the world, is very prevalent. According to Open Doors Ministry website, 322 Christians are killed each month for their faith in the world. 322 Christians. That's three times our church each month being killed for their faith. 214 churches or Christian properties are destroyed in a month's time. 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians, whether it be abduction, beatings, imprisonments, or murder. According to the Pew Research Center, Christians in more than 60 countries right now face persecution for their faith. One report estimated that in 2013, about 2,100 Christians had been killed for their faith. Two years later, in 2015, we saw that number triple to over 7,100 people in the world that had been killed for placing their faith in Christ and standing on that. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Because in verse 13, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I can assure you that one thing that you don't have to do is look for persecution. It's not a message where to prove your holiness, you go and find somebody that will be willing to persecute you. If you want somebody to hit you, I will do it for free. Christ doesn't tell us to seek it out. Christ tells us that by living out your faith, persecution will seek you out. It's a natural response to the truth of the gospel as it hits people's hearts. We saw in the book of Acts there were some that received God's word with grace and truth and they trusted in Christ as their Savior. And then we see on the other hand those that responded negatively. The same will be true in our lives. Will we stand for truth? And how do you stand in such times? Paul gives Timothy the answer. 
in the midst of persecution, we need to realize that the prophet of Scripture is absolutely essential. Verse 14, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, You, however, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Two things Paul's going to point out. Number one, I want you to remember, Timothy, what you've been taught. And number two, Timothy, I want you to recognize the value of God's Word. Remember what you've been taught. Recognize the value of God's Word. You, however, verse 14, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. The word continue there is actually the same word used in John chapter 15 when Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who, what, abides in me, he who remains in me, will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That same word abide or remain is the same word that Paul uses here in verse 14 when he says, I want you, Timothy, to continue... I want you to abide. I want you to be attached to the things that you have learned from your childhood. In Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 2, we see a little bit of Timothy's heritage. It says there that Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and there was a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. Subsequently, no mention of his father being a believer. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and on Iconium. And if you turn just back to chapter 1 of Second Timothy, we see another great picture of Timothy's heritage, his spiritual heritage. In verse 3, Paul writes and he says, You know, Timothy, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful, and here it is, of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that is in you as well. I'd be willing to wager that there are some of you in this room that you had a mom or you had a dad that laid the foundation for your faith. Not because as parents we can make our children believe what we believe, but you had somebody, a mom or a dad or a grandmother, or maybe an uncle or an aunt, and they told you who Jesus was. They were the ones that they brought you to VBS every summer so you could hear God's word. Maybe it was from a teacher. That, that was the first time you heard God's word because somebody that loved you brought you along. My own situation is kind of similar to Timothy's. My, my mother, who you guys all know, many of you know, she was a believer. My father was not. There was a little church in Portland, literally a stone's throw away from where I work at the jail right now. It was called Trinity Baptist Church and it probably had a congregation of about 20 people, 20 unique people. And I remember my mother dragging me to church every single Sunday. And when I say dragging, I mean, I, that, as a young kid, that was my persecution. 
Some of you kids can relate to that, perhaps. She would drag me to church. My father, on the other hand, would be fishing on a Sunday morning. Guess which one I wanted to do. My mother refused to budge. She made my brother and I go to church every single Sunday. There may have been one or two concessions throughout the whole year. So 50 out of 52 weeks, I was sitting in a church pew or sitting under the church pew playing tic-tac-toe at the time. But I was in church. When I look back and I see what my mother did for me, I appreciate so much more her faithfulness to the Lord her unwillingness to bend. Even growing up in a house that was divided where my father wasn't a believer and she was, attention that that must have cost. Because she knew as a child I needed to know Jesus more than I needed to know anything. Some of us have children. You are God's gift to those children to teach them the truths of Christ and to feed them the word of God. Turn, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Old Testament. We're going to see in a few verses that all Scripture is profitable. You may not believe this, but all Scripture really referred at that time to the Old Testament, perhaps some of the Gospels that they had at that time. So when you read God's Word, the first 66 books of the Bible have just as much importance to our lives as the last 29, 27. I totally messed that up in my head. Old Testament is profitable. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moms and dads, do we teach our children the Word of God, not on just a regular basis, but on a daily basis? Are we feeding our children truth? Are we building a heritage of faith in our children that by God's grace someday He may cause to grow in the lives of our children's heart? Proverbs 22.6 tells us, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Not an absolute truth, but a principle to live by. Some of you have seen your children grow up and stray from the truth. But you've also seen them come back because of the foundation of truth you built in their lives. That while they went out and they lived for the world and they lived for themselves for a period of time, when they got their fill of that, like the prodigal son, they came back and they realized that what they had had before was truly life. And what they had sought in the world never satisfied. Build your children. Grow them in the truth of God's Word. I wish that I could promise that my children would live for Jesus for all their days. I have no 
ultimate sovereign control over that. But I do have a God-given responsibility to teach them the truths of God's Word. And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, ultimately it is God that causes the growth in the lives of people's hearts. This is also, just as a side note, where prayer comes in. Moms and dads, pray for your children. Ian Bounds, pastor in the late 1800s, early 1900s, said that only God can move mountains, but faith and prayer move God. Only God can move mountains, but faith and prayer move God. Not because God is at our beck and call, but because through faith and prayer and hearts of humility, we cry out to God to do the things we cannot do ourselves. And God in His mercy and grace is so good to answer us. Timothy, remember. Remember because... Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. I goofed it up earlier. It's actually 66 books in the Bible, right? 39 in the old, 27 in the new. All scripture is inspired by God. Just in the midst of this heat, hoping the fans working a little bit for you. I want you to just meditate on that thought for a sec. God's word, the Greek word here, literally means that God's word, scripture is God breathed. It is the breath of God. I drove home last night, and one of the things I love to do when I get home, I work the 3 to 11 shift. So usually I get home sometime after midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, depending on what my schedule looked like that day. And as I pull into my driveway, if my floodlights don't come on, I like to look at the sky. When you look at the sky on a clear night, you see countless numbers of stars. And when I look at the sky, it reminds me of how great God is and how little I am. The God of the universe through his sovereign, ordained will, has given us his word. He's given you his word. And you and I can sit down whenever we want and meet with him. Isn't that amazing? The God that created you, that knows your ins and outs, gave you a book to live by, and not just to live by, but to encourage and to strengthen you as you walk for Him. The founder of Jews for Jesus, Moise Roizen, said, you know, in life we get all these instruction manuals. You, you, buy, a, you buy a car, you get a manual. You, you get a microwave, you get a manual. We get a life, and God gave us his manual. He gave us his word. Treasure it for the prize that it is. It's God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 20, excuse me, 
Second Peter chapter 1, verses 21. If you turn there real quick, just a little bit ahead, it tells us that, beginning in verse 20, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Guys, this is why the author of Hebrews could write that God's Word is living and active. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's living and active because it is the Word of God, it is the breath of God, and it has supernatural ability to speak to your hearts in a way that no other book will ever speak to your heart. John, Mar- John MacArthur Jr.'s book, Why I Trust the Bible, he says, you know, one of the reasons I know that God wrote the Bible is that it tells me things about myself that only he and I know, and usually at a depth I didn't understand before. Have you ever read a passage at just the right time, and God used that to minister to your heart? Friends, that is no coincidence. That is the power of God working through the power of His Word. What is its value? Paul's going to list out a few things about the value of Scripture. First of all, it's profitable. And he's going to tell us what it's profitable for. But this idea of profitable is is the idea that it's useful. It means in the Greek to help. It, It benefits us. It does us good. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, it says, For bodily discipline is only of a little bit of profit, but godliness is profitable, and there's our word again, profit, profitable, for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. God's word is profitable. All scripture is profitable. All scripture is profitable. Genealogies are profitable. Never understood that one. Until one day I was reading it, and you know what? Sometimes we're afraid to ask God questions. Don't be afraid to ask God questions. I remember reading through the genealogies years ago, and I just sat there, and I, going through the first several chapters of First Chronicles, probably one of those lesser-read books that we deal with, and I sat there, and I said, God, what is the purpose of all these chapters of so-and-so begat so-and-so, and this was the father of so-and-so, and it went on for about six or seven chapters? God, I trust that your word is profitable. All scripture is profitable. All scripture is God-breathed, but I do not see it right now. You know what God laid on my heart as I prayed to him that day? He reminded me of Genesis chapter 15, chapter 12, when he promised Abram that he would be a father of many nations and that his descendants would be more innumerable than the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. I don't read genealogy the same way anymore. Every time I get to a section of Scripture where I see genealogy, I think God is faithful to His promises. So yes, all Scripture is profitable. Bodily discipline is of some profit, but godliness is profitable over all things. Just a quick thought, but how often do you exercise your soul? Back when I was in youth group, I remember running from this church to where my parents live in Raymond with a few of the, the teens. 
with Jim Maurice, for those of you that remember him. He was involved in the youth group and was an elder here for many years. And when we first started running, he taught me this verse in 1 Timothy 4.8. And he wanted me to remember that physical gain is of some value, but godliness holds value over all things. When was the last time you really sat down and spent quality time in God's Word? How often do you spend quality time in God's Word? Do you crave the Word of God? 1 Peter 2.2 2 says, Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow in respect to salvation. God of the universe has given you his word. Shame on us if we are not in it. Let's pray that God gives us the desire as the psalmist in 119.103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 127 of Psalm 119, he says, Therefore I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, said, What we need today is men who believe in the Bible from the crown of their heads to the soles of their feet, who believe in the whole of it, the things they understand and the things they do not understand. If you sit down and you do not understand the Word of God, you're just like me. There are many things in God's Word I do not understand fully. Do not let that be a deterrent for you. God will give you understanding in his time, in his way. And if he doesn't give it to you that day, move on. Read the next verse. Martin Luther said, For a number of years I have now annually read through the Bible twice. Do you realize to read through the Bible once in a year requires just reading three chapters a day? It's about 15 minutes of your life if you're an average reader. Psalm 119 might take you a full day. It's a long one. There are a lot of short ones that will make up for that. Fifteen minutes of our day, and we can read through God's Word in a year. Martin Luther said, I would read through it twice in a year. And it's not the time or the number of times you read through it that's important. If you read one verse a day and God lays something on your heart, Max Lucado says, stop. Some days I read more, some days I read less until God lays something on my heart so I can meditate on it. Martin Luther said, If the Bible were a large, mighty tree and all its words were little branches, get this picture. If the Bible were a large, mighty tree and all its words were little branches, I have tapped at all the branches eager to know what was there and what it had to offer. Do we see God's word as profitable that way? Do we crave it? What is it profitable for? Number one, it's profitable for teaching. It's for doctrine. You cannot know the God of the Word unless you are familiar with the Word of God. You cannot know the God of the Word unless you know the Word of God. It tells us who He is. It tells us what He's done. If you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, read about Him. If you've read the Gospels a thousand times over, read it a thousand and one times. 
I can assure you that because God's word is living and active, God will not leave you empty when you go to his word. I'm amazed at how many times I read a passage that I've read countless times and God pricks my heart with something that I'd never seen before. Not because it's a new revelation or a new interpretation, but because God has a new application for me at that moment that I needed. It's the power of God's word and his spirit working in you. God's word reminds us of our weakness without him, but it also shows our great value because of him. God's word is also profitable for reproof. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. A little bit to your left. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. This word reproof means in the Greek to expose, to convict, to reprove. And we see it in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. It writes, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even, here's our word, expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. One of the benefits, one of the reasons that God's word is profitable, Paul says, is because it exposes things in our lives. I can assure you that that is probably why many people do not read the word of God. How many of you like to know what you've done wrong? I remember going to a church with Mark many years ago on a missions trip. And we went into this little church because we were just trying to find a place to go on a Sunday on our travel. I think we were heading down to Brooklyn, maybe. I can't remember if it was a Brooklyn trip or a different trip. We go into this small church and the pastor comes up and he's all excited. And I think we probably doubled their congregation that day. And he asked us if we could lead music. I'm sure you've heard this story from Mark. Uh, we did not lead music that morning. And then as he was preaching from God's word that day, he used Pastor Mark as an example. And he listed out all his sins. He said, you know, you realize if you sin X number of times a day and you multiply that over the course of a month and over the course of a year, you will have sinned this many times. God's word convicts us of sin. It exposes sin in our life. It's an x-ray, if you will. It's God's way of revealing to our hearts areas that he wants to shore up, strengthen, cleanse. And though we may not like that light shining in those dark places, God knows that when he does that, there's no better place we can be. Is it better to live with a terminal spiritual condition or to have somebody bring it to light so it can be dealt with? God's word shines on the hearts of men and women and shows them truth. In John 16, 8, it says, and he, referring to the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict, same Greek word used in 2 Timothy three sixteen will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Revelation 3.19, Jesus said, Those whom I love, I reprove. There's our word, I reprove and I discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. 
Guys, guilt is a God-given thing. Conviction. Some of us have a feeling that guilt, perhaps, is not good. Guilt is not good if you stay in guilt. Guilt is very good if God uses that conviction to free us from what we're guilty of. It's also good for correction. Praise God that he doesn't just point out the flaws in our life, right? Matt, you are a terrible person. I want you to know that today. And he leaves us there, right? He corrects us. The word correction is from the Greek meaning to set upright, to set straight again. It's used of a woman in the book of Luke, chapter 13, and you don't have to turn there. I'll turn there real quickly for you. But there was this woman that Jesus came upon in chapter 13 of Luke. And she had been in a condition for a long time. And in verse 10 it says, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath and there was a woman who for 18 years, 18 years, had had a sickness caused by a spirit and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. Can you imagine being bent over for 18 years and not being able to stand upright? 18 years. And when Jesus saw her, verse 12, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was, and here's our Greek word for correction, she was made erect again. He straightened her out. Not only does God reprove us and shine the light on the areas in our sin that he wants to change, he corrects us with his word as well. Do you see the grace in that? He doesn't just beat you down with his word. He heals you with his word. If reprove is the x-ray of God's word, correction is the setting it right again. When you break a bone, you don't leave it that way, right? You set it right. You stick a rod in there and you make it straight again. God's word corrects. It's also good for training in righteousness. It's the idea of rearing a child or training and discipline. In Ephesians 6.4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. God's word prepares you. It trains you for life. We're watching the Olympics, right? Sure, so several of you started watching it yesterday, opening ceremonies on Friday. Those guys train tirelessly for this time of the year, every four years. God's word trains us for the race that it says in Hebrews 12 that is set before every single one of us. If you are not in God's word being trained by it, you will not be equipped or ready for the race. I recently had injured my back and had to go through PT for three or four weeks, whatever it was. I'd never been through physical therapy before. Never really been in a spot where I couldn't tie my shoes. The point of physical therapy was to get me ready for normal life, to get me ready for life, to be able to function properly, to live for whatever would come my way, right? 
get me back on the right track. God's Word does that. It trains us in righteousness. So that, it says in verse 17, the man of God may be adequate, he may be complete and equipped for every good work. Are you equipped with the promises of God? Because I can tell you, you will face trials in life when the promises of God will need to be so present in your heart for you to stand firm in your faith. When you hear about a situation like the Dinosaurs are going through this week, when your world gets rocked in a way you never saw coming, if you are not trained and equipped by the Word of God, you will not stand in those times. I'll never forget when we lost Gracie. She'd be 13. We lost our first child at birth. I remember that night sitting next to my wife in the hospital bed. And I said, let's just look at God's Word for a minute. And I opened up God's Word, and then just, this is the beauty of God's Word that we've been talking about all morning. I, just in my normal quiet time, I was in the Psalms, and I'm one of those weird people that just, I keep reading through God's Word. So I go Genesis through Revelation. And then I start all over again. I don't have any timeline or time frame. I just keep reading. That night, we were in, I was in Psalms. And it's just this little psalm. I believe it's Psalm 70. And we read that psalm together. I think it's like five verses long. And I will tell you that God's Spirit at that moment, God in His sovereignty, knew that that little psalm would be the anchor to our souls that night. We need to be a people of God's Word. We may not face persecution like Paul has, but you will face trials. You will face difficulties when you get kicked in the stomach and you're not sure how you're going to get up again. You will stumble and you will fall to temptation and you will need the grace of God's Word to lift you back up and remind you that you are a sinner saved by grace and that God's grace is so much greater than your sin. You will need that rock to cling to when life's storms hit you hard. That's what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7. The wise man built his house upon a rock, right? The foolish man built his house on the sand. And the rock is a reference to the words of Christ that he had just spoken previously to them on the Sermon on the Mount. What are you clinging to for your strength in hard times? Are you conditioning yourselves as children of God to know the Word of God so that by His grace, when times of persecution or difficulty come, you will stand firm? Father, we need your help. God, help us to fall in love with your Word. Help us to see it for what it is. God, help us not to be afraid of having our sin exposed, but instead to see, Lord, that in its exposure, you are actually pouring grace upon our hearts and our souls so you can mend us and free us from that which is weighing us down. God, help us to be moms and dads that teach our children your word so that, God, when they step out and they 
are at that point when they have to decide, do I believe in Jesus because I believe in Jesus, or do I believe in it because my parents always believed in him? God, they will have the foundation of your word to stand on. And their faith will be their own. God, I thank you that you have given us your word. I thank you that it is truth. It is transcendent above all other works of literature that have ever come into the world because it is literally from your breath. Lord, we love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.